Well, I've simply titled this sermon, The Revelation of Jesus. The Revelation of Jesus. That is the title that sums up this passage we'll be looking at in chapter 1. And it's really the title that sums up the entire book of Revelation, which the church has historically called Revelation, or sometimes called the Apocalypse of John. This book is the climactic final book of the Bible. It has been called the the capstone and the canon of Scripture. And it's not to be neglected by the Christian. And I was thinking as I was preparing this that there seems to be two tendencies among Christians. We seem to be top-heavy one way or the other. Either on the one hand, the church has been in its history so consumed in the book that they that they get too bogged down in the details and there's too much dogmatism and too much so forth of reading the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And that could be a a tendency to watch out for. On the other hand, there's a tendency to gather dust on this book and neglect it altogether. And there's some who cry down that the, the book is altogether unprofitable because it's dark and mysterious and you know, maybe they respect it at a distance. It's inspired, but they, they don't ever touch it. And we want to steer clear of that extreme as well because God has put it in His Word. So I thought we would unfold it in the, the different times to come here. There are several reasons to read the book, but one reason in particular should draw every true believer to the book of Revelation, and it is that it reveals in a unique way the Lord Jesus Christ. It reveals Him in His person, and it reveals Him in His second coming, which the believers in Scripture are are called those who love His appearing. If you love Christ, you should read the book of Revelation. I was looking through different commentators and people, and I I like what J.C. Ryle said in the, the 1800s. He was often very careful to land on opinions that had different views in the church. And so this carries more weight. He says this about the book of Revelation in one of his articles. Quote, There is much about the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. There are names and titles and expressions about Him there which we find nowhere else. There is new light thrown on His offices, His power, His care for His people. Surely this alone is no small matter. To know Jesus is life eternal. To abide in Jesus is to be fruitful. If we are indeed born of the Spirit, we can never hear too much about our Savior, our Shepherd, our High Priest, and our Physician. If our hearts are right in the sight of God, we can never hear too much about our Savior King. Like snow in summer and good news from a far country, so are any fresh tidings about Christ. End quote. And there are tidings in this book about Christ. And I would propose to all of us this evening that the revelation of Jesus is the great and transforming blessing that is promised to the readers of this book. 
I would argue it's really the theme of the book. Jesus is the revelation. The first words in the entire book contain this theme in chapter 1, which we are at, in verse 1. Look at the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. The book of Revelation is principally the revelation of Jesus Christ Himself. It is a revelation from Christ, but it is also a revelation about Christ. The word revelation means the making known of something that was previously a secret. It's an apocalypse. Literally means an unveiling. And it's a divine unveiling. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is when the curtain is lifted from heaven to show things on earth that are not clearly seen. And we, we tend to associate the word apocalypse with the last days. But it's more than just that. It's not just the unveiling of a plan, but it is the unveiling of a person. And although this book of Revelation does concern things that must soon take place, which it claims at the very beginning, we must remember that the central revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all His sovereign glory. And it is this vision of Christ at the beginning which fills this first chapter and it's what we'll look at. It's this lofty revelation of Christ that pervades the rest of the book. And I, I feel the need to point this out to us. I love studying Revelation. I've enjoyed it over the years. I feel in myself, and I think on the part of many in the church, there is a tendency in handling the book of Revelation to become more fascinated sometimes with the things to come than the person to come. We're prone to get more excited about navigating an end times narrative than we are to worship the King who is ushering in His kingdom. Now, the details in this book have an important place, and we have to wrestle with them if we're going to take this book seriously. But I want to give a pastoral caution. And the caution is, do not overlook the Jesus of Revelation when delving into the book of Revelation. This book was given so that you and I would worship and prepare for Jesus Christ. Verse 3 of the first chapter assigns sort of a beatitude stating that the one who reads the words of this prophecy will be blessed. And I, I trust that this blessing extends to you and I as we spend time opening it this evening. So I want to camp on these opening verses in this book about Jesus. It's noteworthy, I was thinking to myself, it's noteworthy that the first chapter in the book is simply a vision of who Jesus is. Before the book ever gets to events and judgments and events and beasts and a dragon and all the details that we may be eager to flip to, we are to stop first and behold the King whom this whole book is about. 
Our passage in chapter 1 of Revelation unveils to us a view of Jesus we too often forget. And it is Jesus in His exaltation and glory. I once had a Bible teacher who said this. He said, we are often too guilty of having a low ceiling over our worship. In other words, we have a tendency to bring God down to our level of comfort in order to contemplate and commune with Him. And we ought to keep Him transcendent. In the same way, we could do the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important that we don't just view Christ as He once was in His humiliation, in His incarnation, in His earthly ministry. But if you think of Christ, I hope that we also think of Christ as He now is in His exaltation, on His throne in glory. And that is what this first chapter reveals. High and lifted up. Let's, let's jump into the passage. We're going to begin in verse 9 and look at this exalted Christ together. Verse 9, John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. I want to stop and briefly take a few notes of the hour in which this was written because we often miss it. Notice the context. John is writing in an hour of tribulation. He's not writing for an audience who just has all these questions about what's going to happen. They're having a very difficult time in the church. This was a vision that the Apostle John received in the first century because the early church desperately needed to have it set before them. Think about what has happened up until this point. At this point in writing the book, it is the time in which the church has become hated in the Roman Empire. It had gone through a series of minor persecutions here and there, martyrdoms under Nero, but not a widespread persecution. By this time, under the emperor Domitian, which church fathers credit as, as being reigning in the Roman Empire at this time, at this time, persecution was ramping up. A martyrdom is, was becoming a stronger possibility and even a new normal in certain areas. Added to this was the spiritual condition of these churches. The next generation was drifting away there were serious declines. Five of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the next couple chapters will receive His piercing rebuke. There was heresy. There was apathy. There was immorality. There was lukewarmness. One church he even just flat out says, you're dead. Consider that the other apostles have already faced their deaths by this time. Uh, the Apostle Paul is dead at this point. John is the last surviving apostle. He's older in years, and he's been exiled onto this island called Patmos, which was not a paradise. It was not a time to just be stranded on an island. Some people picture it that way. 
Um, That was a difficult sentence. Criminals and convicts were sent to islands by the Romans when they were considered violators of the law, even treasonous. And they would perform hard labor and be put in harsh conditions. And John, as an old man, is laying on the ground. It's a rocky island. And he would be laboring, probably among other criminals, while some Roman would be ordering them around with a whip. This was a difficult season for the church as the last apostle who knew Jesus. And the inner circle was now this sort of lightning rod in the Roman Empire. And don't forget the temple has been destroyed and Jerusalem sacked. It seemed hopeless. And although the book will go on to explain future days of great tribulation on the earth, it's worthy to note that John's own days were already days of tribulation. He writes, he is their brother in tribulation. And really, the the whole age of the church goes through stages of tribulation. The need of the hour, the the need of the, the first century church was for the church to receive a vision. A vision that would prompt them to overcome. Not just a vision of of how the world would end in the last days, but a vision of the risen and enthroned Christ who was still reigning and advancing His kingdom until He comes. The church needed to see that it was not Domitian, the Roman emperor, who was ultimately on the throne. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ who has the throne and all authority and power were given to Him. It's Him who presides over the human affairs of history. Reigning in majesty. Building His church. Advancing His kingdom until the time comes when He would return and consummate His reign on the earth. And though we may not be facing martyrdom, that extent of tribulation in our nation, we ought to remember that there are many in the world who are. We also have to remember that it could come here. This book is for all Christians for all time because tribulation is not something that the Christian is exempt from. And we need a vision of Christ. This is a vision of Christ that we need in this hour yet again. Because as we look around, we we find ourselves in difficult days. We see the nations raging. We too have pressures that threaten us from upper levels of government and within society. We too have churches that are very influenced by the world and there's apathy. And so our church, as the church in America also, needs a vision of Christ who is high and lifted up. Note next, John writes, He's not just a brother in tribulation, but continuing in verse 9, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. It's important for John to remind these churches that it's, it's not just an hour of tribulation that they're in, it's, it's also the hour of the kingdom. It's the hour to keep persevering. 
These all go together. It is the hour of the kingdom because Jesus is advancing His kingdom through the Gospel. And it's the hour to persevere. Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When John views his predicament and the hour of tribulation, it's important to note that he views it in connection with the kingdom and with patient endurance. And notice each of these are linked to the phrase, in Jesus. They're all linked to in Jesus. The tribulation is in Jesus. The kingdom is in Jesus. And patient endurance is in Jesus. This verse is important, and we often pass over it as we go through the book without considering that it's actually the key to the rest of the book. Thank you for turning on the AC. (laughs) Tribulation is a theme. The kingdom is a main theme. And the application of perseverance is a main theme in this book. And they all find their deepest meaning in Jesus. And John says he was persecuted on account of the word. He's the last surviving apostle, probably in his 90s at this point. And there was no retirement from his mission to proclaim Christ. John has continued as his witness since that day he ascended in glory. And now after several decades, he's about to come into contact with his master, Jesus. But this time, it's not going to be the same view of Jesus as the Galilean he once knew. It'll be majestic. Look at verse 10. John writes, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John is enduring his exile along the the Asian Sea, and suddenly, on the day that he knew the churches gathered together, the Lord transports them to a supernatural realm. I don't know what that looked like if he was still there in the flesh and he just was in a different realm. If it was outside of time, we can speculate about that. But he was in a different place. And he hears something he hasn't heard before. He hears the voice like a trumpet. Now we're used to thinking of a trumpet in terms of music, but this is not that kind of trumpet. This is more of a trumpet that has a military blast. Used in battle. Used to alert other people. It's powerful. It's arresting. It's urgent. And this is the voice that John hears. It's not a whisper. He heard a powerful voice commanding him to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And this voice, as we will see, spoiler, is the authoritative voice of Jesus Himself. 
the crucified and risen Christ who ascended and was invisible to the churches up until this point is making an appearance in a vision to John and he's going to speak new words to the church. Notice who he's speaking to. It says, to the churches. To the churches. What Jesus has to say at this hour of time is not to fix the government. Roman Empire is messed up. We need to all get together in a coalition. Fix it up. It's not about winning a culture war. It's not about how to find safety. Rather, the words of Christ are to make the churches strong. His words are are to call them to overcome and to get ready because He's coming. And these seven churches were in basically seven key cities along a postal route. To receive the message in these cities was to be able to disseminate it easy to the rest of the universal church as we have it in our hands today by God's providence. These churches would receive this message and spread it. And continuing in verse 12, and I'm going to move faster here. Continuing in verse 12, John says, Then I turned. Who wouldn't turn to hear this voice? He turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. I'm going to make a brief point about that before we move to the vision of Christ. About these seven golden lampstands. Another spoiler. They're going to also be revealed in verse 20. And they're identified as the seven churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor. And they're called golden lampstands. The fact that the churches were called lampstands tells us that the primary ministry of the church was to hold forth the light of God's truth and the testimony of Jesus in their dark society. These are the exact things that John was exiled for. The church is the light. That's the purpose, to shine in the world, to preach the Word and not be overcome by the darkness in your city. We as a church are called to be a lampstand in the city of Fillmore. When people see us or come in our midst, they are to see and hear God's truth proclaimed. And in the following chapters, there will be a call from Jesus to keep this light burning, or otherwise it will be taken away. It's also worth briefly noting that the lampstands which represent the churches are golden. This speaks to the precious value they have to those whom they belong to. They belong to the Lord Jesus. The value they have, of course, is that they have been purchased by His shed blood. The church has value to Christ. And the vision continues to become even more captivating as it shifts in sharp focus to the center of the vision. And it's the revelation of of Jesus. In the remaining verses, we're going to look not merely at what, but who John saw and identify several characteristics revealed about Jesus. And that'll be 
the rest of our time. I'm going to go through them in quick succession. There's layers of sometimes Old Testament illusion and stuff, and I'm not going to get into all that. I just want to sort of get the the gist of each characteristic that is pointed out about Christ because these symbolisms highlight who he is in his exalted status. So I'll keep each point concise. There's eight that I identify. People come up with different amounts. I saw eight that really stood out to me about Jesus in his exaltation. Let's start with verse 13. Having seen the golden lampstands, John then writes, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. I'm going to stop there at that moment. John's attention is drawn not merely to these shining golden lampstands, which I'm sure were impressive in this heavenly vision, but his gaze is transferred to one that looks like the Son of Man in the midst of them. And this is, of course, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's often called the Son of Man. And it goes beyond the Son of Man title in the Gospels that we're familiar with. This goes all the way back to Daniel. The first characteristic about Jesus is that Jesus is revealed to be the rightful king. He's revealed to be the rightful king. Sometimes we think the word son of man is more a reference to his humanity because the word man is in there. If you go back to Daniel 7, which we're not going to flip there, you could jot it down and look it up later. Daniel 7 reveals that the one who would come, who's called the Son of Man, would be the one who approaches the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and would receive the right to reign on His throne over the nations forever and ever. In Daniel 7, which I hope you look up in your your time, the Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. And it conveys the idea that the Messiah will reign with an everlasting kingdom because he earned that right and that is the status that john notices right here he notices the rightful king and i would say that this is a major theme in revelation what's so striking about this vision is that john's witnesses i'm sorry that john he witnesses that the son of man is the transcendent and supreme King of Kings. But He's also in the midst of His churches. He's transcendent, but He's with the churches. He's walking among the lampstands. That's the second characteristic I see in this passage. The second characteristic of Jesus is that He is revealed as being present with His church which is exactly what the churches at the time would need to hear. It's a remarkable thing to ponder anew. When we gather, when we worship corporately and hear His Word and exercise our gifts and fellowship outside, King Jesus is in our midst. And He's moving And he's in the midst of all the churches that are united to him. All the lampstands. It brings me joy on Sundays sometimes just to ponder all the churches in the world 
that are gathering. Some in buildings that they're blessed to have. Some in homes. Some with maybe a few in a cramped quarter. Some underground. Some outside. Wherever two or three are gathered in His name, He's there in the midst of them. He's with them to the very end of the age as He promised. And He's moving in their hearts. Different locations. Different denominations. Different um, governments of church. Church government. Different doctrinal views and practices so long as they hold to the creed of the Gospel. Jesus is tending them where they're at. He's walking among the churches. He is gracious to do so. These churches needed to hear that, and we need to hear that. Jesus is always identified with His church. The verse continues by stating that He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around His chest. This attire also speaks of His intimate acquaintance with us because it has biblical significance. The attire of a robe with a sash was often worn by the high priest. Jesus is our priest. He's with us. Just as the priest in the Old Testament would tend to the the lampstand in the temple, Jesus tends to the churches. He keeps them lit. Someone could probably also point out that the, the robe and the sash was also worn by the prophets. It was also worn by kings. And so it's possible that perhaps all of the anointed offices of the Messiah are joined together in this depiction of Jesus. And He's with His people. He's the consummate prophet who brings words to the churches as He does in this book and being Himself the living Word. He's the King who, as we saw, is the rightful King, the Son of Man who reigns. And He is the eternal High Priest who very fittingly is in the midst of the lampstands, keeping them lit and influential. Jesus tends to the churches. So He's revealed to be the rightful King. He's revealed to be with His church. John takes notice next of the hair of His head. Look at verse 14. Having looked at his attire, we read, the hairs of his head were white. White like wool, like snow. This shows the next characteristic of the exalted Christ. Jesus is revealed to have sinless purity. Sinless purity. His hair is described white as snow. Not a speck of black. There isn't a hint of any sinful defilement in His person. And this is also imagery you would find in Daniel chapter 7 as the Son of Man there is also pictured with a hair of white. It is this sinless purity which qualifies Him to be the rightful King. And beyond just this, although there's layers to that which are fascinating, beyond just this, This is the Holy One who evaluates the churches. This is the One who is holy, who dwells in the midst of the churches. And it is also a call to holiness. 
1 Peter 1.15 says, Like the Holy One who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. <clears throat> Jesus is the standard of life in the church. He's sanctifying His saints to His image, and He's the standard of your life. We're not to evaluate ourselves as a church, comparing ourselves with other churches, either that we're better than other churches, or perhaps we have a high church in mind that we're like, oh, we need to be like that, as if it's a horizontal comparison. We're to compare ourselves with Jesus, the head of the church, the Holy One. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pursue holiness in conformity to Him. That's going to be significant when Jesus addresses the churches because he doesn't mince words. He calls out sin and he says what he is against. He is holy. And he takes his church seriously to be holy. Continuing in the vision, in verse 14, having looked at his sinless purity, symbolized by his hair, John seems to go down and he notices his face, in particular, his eyes, and next he sees his feet. Take a look. Verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now we've seen first that Jesus is the rightful king. Second, that he's present with his church. Third, that he has sinless purity. And now fourth, we see here that Jesus is revealed as purifying the church. That is what Jesus is doing in his exalted status. He is examining and always purifying his church. His eyes were like a flame of fire which captures the idea of penetrating into all that goes on in the life of every church. And it's really a a terrifying image, I'm sure, to John and to us as we imagine it. Not, Not just because fiery eyes are frightening, but because the meaning conveys that he can see through every one of us in his church. And nothing escapes His scrutiny. We can only lead and oversee and see the outside of people in the church. But the head of the church, Jesus, He's the only one who really knows every person as they really are. All concealed sin. All hypocrisy. All ill motives all deficiencies, all secret affections are before Jesus. And they're before Him right now. Hebrews 4.13 says that there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Jesus is holy. And unlike the way He's portrayed sometimes in the common culture church, He's not indifferent to the state of His churches. And He has the perfect balanced perspective for looking at churches. That's another thing I thought of as I thought of Jesus purifying the church. He has the perfect balance. 
Well, we have a limited view of what makes a good church and what makes a bad church. Jesus sees it in perfection. And what I find striking about how he addresses the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 is that he sees the good and the bad sometimes at once. There are times when he goes, I commend you on these deeds, but I have this against you. And he seems to look at churches in this nuanced way where we tend to just blanketly say, oh, that church, bad church. This church, good church. So that's one thing I thought about is I thought about Jesus looking at the churches. He meets them where they're at. And it's all before him. And his assessment is the ultimate judgment that is perfect because he knows it all. When he talks to the churches, he says things like, to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds. He says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation. He says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell. It's both a comfort and it's a call to urgency and also scary. Jesus knows the church. Sometimes in our elder meetings, we're talking and um, Brother Richard says something that I think is very helpful. When we're perplexed by something, he'll say, Jesus knows all about that. And sometimes we just have to pray and know that Jesus is purifying and he knows the church. This is the weightiest reality when it comes to leading a church. It should also be weighty for you as you serve and commune in His church. That Jesus is always examining our hearts and our ministries and our conduct and our relationships with one another. The fire speaks to a role in judgment. And in addition to the fire in His eyes, verse 15 continues, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This is judgment I speak of in the terms of evaluative judgment. This is Christ's chastisement judgment. The idea here is not only that Jesus looking, he not only looks into the church, but he's moving around the church as he searches. A, a furnace is meant to refine. And in case you're kind of wincing at the word judgment with church, let me remind you that Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, Judgment must begin with the household of God. We so often think of the book of Revelation as in terms of how He will judge the world. And of course, that's a major theme in the book. But Jesus would have us first consider in the book the judgment of His people. Our service to Him and our ministry for Him and our works for Him are all tested by fire. Though we know that true believers are ultimately not subject to ultimate judgment and wrath in hell, we know from Scripture that our works will be evaluated before Him. 1 Corinthians 3 uses fire in this way, saying that all that is built for Him will be burned away as a loss to us at the final day. All that conforms to His standards will endure like foundations of gold and silver and precious stones. And all that drifts away from His will will be burned away like wood, hay, and stubble. And He also judges in the sense of how He chastises His church in the present time. 
Trials are often called fiery trials. And fire in this way has the function of testing what is good. And this is the goodness of Christ that we should not despise. He chastises His true church. And the eyes of Jesus penetrate through His churches and He will sanctify them even when it hurts toward holiness, toward His image. I'm going to move on in the vision and I'm going to move more rapidly through the rest of the characteristics. Verse 15 continues to describe Christ. Not only the way He looks, but now how He sounds. Verse 15, And His voice was like the roar of many waters. This is the fifth characteristic I want us to consider. And it is that Jesus is revealed to have a strong voice to the church. This is what the church needs, especially in an hour of tribulation. They need a strong, powerful voice. And this is what John hears. We read earlier that his voice was like the blast of a trumpet, but now it's, it's even louder. It's presented as having more strength. And the, the idea is that his voice is so powerful, it drowns out all other voices, like many waters. I've been on a hike, and I'm sure you have as well, where, where you stand next to a river that's just roaring and there's rapids, or maybe you stand next to a waterfall. And it's so loud, you can't even talk to the person next to you. It's arresting. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. He is dominant. This is exactly what the voice, this is the voice that the church needs. Not the voice of the culture. Not the voice of teachers in the church even themselves. They need the voice of Christ that has power, that's supernatural. And this description sets up what Jesus will be doing in the next couple chapters when He speaks to the churches. Because they are to consider that this is not any mere opinion. This is not a pitiful voice to listen to. It is the voice of the exalted Christ. And it's strong. And you must take heed. And it it begs the question, because I don't think it's just about the churches in Revelation, although that is the emphasis here. I think it's clear that every church for every age needs this strong voice of Christ. We need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. How do we hear His strong voice? Well, we know He's given us His Word. He's given us this book of Revelation. He's given us the rest of the canon. And He's sent His Holy Spirit to understand it and apply it to our lives. And when we drift from that, we drift from His voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I would propose the Word of God, read and taught and applied and proclaimed, is the voice of Jesus. Every generation of the church needs this strong voice. And if you look throughout church history since the beginning, it is the times when, that are the worst when they're drifting away from the Word. And it is the time of most stirring when they're going back to the Word. 
When the proclamation of the word is restored to the pulpit and to the center of the service, that's when reformations come. That's when revivals come. That's when great awakenings come. And it's what we need today. We need the preaching of the word because only that is powerful enough to transform. That is the voice of Christ like many waters. And it's from him. And this can be taken further in the beginning of verse 16. Verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. These seven stars are later revealed in verse 20 later to be seven angels or literally translated from the word messengers. And this is the sixth characteristic I will identify. Jesus is revealed to be holding his messengers. Jesus upon his throne is holding his messengers. I didn't want to skip over that detail. It seems very purposefully put there that he's holding his messengers right after he says he has a strong voice. Because I think they are the vehicle through which his strong voice pervades the culture. And there's different ways that people have gone about the word angels, the seven angels of the churches. The word angel is actually used different ways in Scripture. It simply just means messenger. There's heavenly angels, which is usually what we think of as angelic beings in the spiritual realm. But there are also, in a sense, human angels, in the sense that they are literally messengers. So there's heavenly messengers, but there are also human messengers who are called to preach the Word of God. Some have concluded that this passage refers to angelic beings that were over these churches and they were to deliver the message, perhaps. Many commentators seem to drift from that view because, for one thing, it seems that the messengers themselves need this message and angels do not sin and need rebuke. On the other hand, it's also said that they are to read this to their congregation, the words of this prophecy. And although angels could have done that, it seems more likely that human messengers would relay this message sent from John. And human messengers proclaim the word. It's possible that what's being referred to here is the teachers who presided over the congregations, who would be responsible to read the book to the congregations. And this would make the messengers the teachers and the preachers and those who who teach Bible studies, all who teach in the church and proclaim God's Word. Regardless of the perspective, you could take either one. Regardless, Jesus holds in His hand those who proclaim His truth. That is what He does in every age of the church. That's one of the arguments I like to make sometimes to someone who, who looks at the, the message that's preserved and, and scoffs at all these churches for all time that are different. Well, God has preserved His Word. Handed down from teacher to teacher. He's always had teachers in the church because He holds them in His hand. And His Word has never diminished in any age of the church. His messengers are protected and securely held in place as His mouthpiece. He he sort of holds them forth 
He supports them. He strengthens them. He protects them. And I, this is a good comfort that God in, G, in Christ always holds teachers to be faithful to the truth. And they're described as stars because they're to shine in the darkness. They're to shine like the lampstands, revealing the truth of God in a dark culture. Jesus, on His throne, holds His messengers. Two more things that Jesus is doing. Two more characteristics that I'll go through quickly. Verse 16 goes on. John then sees something in his hand. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. That would have been quite a sight. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is the seventh characteristic. And it's that Jesus has a severe punishment. Now, you may not think that at first when you hear the double-edged sword. Because I used to think for a long time when I read this that this was referring to the Scriptures. Because Scripture is called a double-edged sword. And Jesus could use His Scripture. Many do not conclude that this is the Word of God in view from His mouth. But in light of the other context in Revelation, including the next chapter and chapter 19 at the end, this sword is used to exercise judicial authority in His world toward the unrepentant. I'll give you a couple examples sort of make a little bit of a case here. You can jot this down and look it up later, but I'll give you the gist. In chapter 2, just a chapter later in Revelation, Revelation 2.16, Jesus uses this same exact phrase to the church in Pergamum. And here's what He says to them. After rebuking them, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This sword is used for war. Same exact wording as chapter 1. Just verses before. The idea is that as Jesus calls members of these churches to repent and to persevere and overcome, those who refuse and continue to fall away from Him it will be punished along with the rest of the world. That as He's coming onto the scenes of history, do not delay repentance. Overcome. There will always be tares along with the wheat, and they will not be revealed until the harvest. The book of Revelation, much like the book of Hebrews, gives a severe warning that none of us have inside of us an unbelieving and unrepentant heart. That none of us prove by our disobedience that we were never saved and we never knew Christ. The way God's people manifest that they are His is that they persevere and they overcome. At the end of Revelation... When he returns to the earth in chapter 19, you can also jot it down and look it up later, it says he will use the sword from his mouth to war against all of the unbelievers on the earth. 
And this should cause self-examination in the church. For all who wear the name Christian and do not repent of their sin. For all who call themselves a church but are not separate from the culture. Those who are unrepentant are destined to the same severe punishment as the unbelieving world. And it's here that we need to realize that it's a total myth that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and full of wrath, but Jesus is so kind and only kind. It's true that there is a, a more of a window of redemption and windows of grace and opportunity in this age. But the book of Revelation shows that that time frame is coming to a close. Patience, by definition, has to have a limit. He doesn't tolerate sin. He's simply offering repentance, and the offer will be off the table. Someone once said, I think it was Paul Washer, that it's as though Jesus is holding back the wrath of God with one hand, and with the other, He's offering salvation But a day is coming when both hands will come down and wrath will consume the unrepentant. He's gracious, but he has a sword in his hand and we need to mark it. And it will be used in war as he prepares the earth for his eternal reign. One final characteristic that John sees and we will close You would think he's seen enough, but then the end of verse 16 is sort of the climax. The end of verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This shows the last characteristic. The revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus, is the unveiling of the glory of God. And that is a theme of of the book. Sometimes people categorize Revelation as a pessimistic book, but it's actually a very optimistic book. It's about how the world is making way for the glory of God in Christ to fill the earth. This is what has always been promised. This is what creation is groaning for. John looks into the shining countenance of Jesus and he describes it like staring into the sun. He says in full strength. I'm imagining the noonday sun. You you can't even look at it. John can't bear it. The light that he sees is the radiant glory of God in the second member of the Godhead, Jesus. John saw a glimpse of this, if you remember, back in the ministry of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. But now it's in full strength. It's too much for human eyes. You remember when Moses cried out to God, show me your glory. And God says, no, you can't see my face and live. Go hide behind a rock and I'll, I'll pass by. And Moses does, and he can't even look at that. This is the glory seen here in the divine Son of God. The second member of the Godhead. Jesus. And though we won't get into the following verses, it's worth noting the response of John. Notice in the next verse, in verse 17, uh, he doesn't 
give Jesus a hug. He doesn't put his arm around him like his buddy. John falls down at his feet as though dead. And the main point is this, not just the gravity of the glory of God witnessed by a sinful man, but it's also the whole point is that John, as well as all, are waiting for the time when we will have resurrected bodies to behold the glory of God in His face. And this is why Jesus tells him next to fear not, because He has the keys of death and Hades. And at the end of the book, it's sort of all the ties come together and it says they will see His face after the resurrection, after the new earth and the cosmos is restored to Him. But at this present time, Jesus is glorious and we cannot yet receive Him in that fullness. Not in this state. This is the climax of the vision. This also reveals the climax of the book and the direction of all human and redemptive history. The book of Revelation is not just about the judgments of God. It's not just about the events that will transpire. It's all working together to manifest the glory of God in Christ filling His redeemed earth to be beheld and adored by His people forever and ever. And the only way they know they will come to enjoy this is if they overcome. This is the great apocalypse. This is the great unveiling. This is the great revelation of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we close, I I just admit that I cannot grasp these things completely. None of us can... None of us can imagine what you have prepared for those who love you. It doesn't even enter our heart. Lord, I pray for forgiveness for the indifference we often have to your second coming. We pray that you would stir our hearts to look with great longing for the bridegroom. That our our lamps would be burnt. That we would be your church shining. That we would be your lampstand as you walk among us as you reign on your throne, that we would look to you and our hope would be in Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.